0: welcome those who are here for the first day. Yesterday, um, we talked about, uh, or I talked about, talked about one of the three trainings of the Buddha that the Buddha gave us called the Threefold Training. The first one, um, Chittakanda, which is paying attention to the experienced mind. In, uh, which is what we do in meditation. It's not an abstract mind. It's not an object. It's actually the reality we're experiencing at that time. And we do that with right effort and right mindfulness and right concentration. So today, we'll move on to talk about another aspect, which is called sila, which, we usually, which is sometimes Translated as morality. I like to translate it as behavioral discipline just because of the way morality has a certain load to it that is not quite what the Buddha was talking about. And so this is the um, area that focuses on speech and action in the world and also livelihood. That's there as well, these three. But in a, in a retreat, I think it's um, important to include, when we're talking about sila, the speech to ourselves in our own minds. So what's our, what is the way we talk to ourselves? So when we, um, and how do we act? How do we move through this space? How are we? There's lots of space within a retreat to attend to sila. To look at the way we connect to each other, interact with each other. But mostly it's with ourselves. So when we walk into, sometimes we have the opportunity, for example, to walk through the zendo when everybody else is sitting. Right? So you might come back from practice discussion, what we call dokusan. You might come in late. You might come in for any number of reasons. We might find ourselves walking through the zendo when people are sitting. And um, we might think that we're walking on the floor. But part of what we're doing is walking through the minds and hearts of everyone who's sitting. And they're feeling us. And so our footsteps are such that they take that into account. One way that um, I think about it for myself is, I don't know if any of you have ever worked with moss or moss gardens, but um, if you walk through a young moss garden too swiftly, you tear the moss out of the ground. And there's a way of walking through a moss garden barefoot, which is, I think, the most wonderful way to walk through a moss garden, because they're great to feel. um, That doesn't tear up the moss. And so when we walk through the zendo, and we're moving, we're walking in the moss of hearts and minds, and we're attending to that. So, is our pace taking that into account? Is is the sound of our feet taking that into account? Are we recognizing that we're walking actually within our own minds? And what are we doing to our own minds with our own walking? And of course, this isn't um, just the case here. We are always walking through the hearts and minds of everyone else. It's just obvious. More obvious here. And this um, recognition and this adjustment of our movement is how we cultivate the attitude of sila cultivate the attitude of behavioral discipline. It's not a rigid, hard attitude. It's not an attitude that um, shoves against the world or makes hard demands on ourselves. It's just an attitude that recognizes that we're always walking through the hearts and minds of other human beings and our own. And so there's a certain amount of barefooted gentleness to that movement but there's also over time enjoyment of walking through a moss garden it doesn't have to be oh my god I'm walking through a moss garden (laughs) but how nice it is to be able to walk barefoot through a moss garden and what does that feel like this has been and st- remains a hard won lesson for me. I did not come into this practice soft. So um, then there are other opportunities here. So that's our attitude around sila. And then there might we may find ourselves. Um, lost in thought, scattered, uh, all over the place. And then we... I'm like my grandmother. My grandmother, every photo, she was holding something. I love to just be holding something. It feels good, especially warm tea. Um, We find ourselves scattered and we offer this posture. Zen offers this posture. And it doesn't matter if this posture happens on the cushion or happens on the chair, but there's a particular waist up posture. and um, And so when the mind is scattered, we talked about samadhi yesterday as being a gathering of the mind. When the mind is scattered, we give the encouragement to rest in the breath at the deepest place we feel it. But there are other things that can happen. In this tradition, we sit with our eyes slightly open, 45 degrees down, with the eyes straight. Now, you will, if you pay attention, you may notice that if you're lost in thought, that lost in thought hijacks your eyes, They're usually up here somewhere, over here, you know, you're kind of lost. If we attend to keeping the eyes 45 degrees down and straight, with its slightly opened eyelids relaxed, it's a lot harder for the mind to be hijacked. It's a lot easier to insist on presence in a room. Now, there may be times in your practice you're doing something else, where you're paying strict attention to a particular energy in your body, and you want to focus in that way. But if what we're doing is presence, this allows that more. Letting our mind rest at the deepest point, we, we put our hands like this, and we put it at the hara, because one of the old instructions in Zen is to drop the mind into the hara, so that we don't have this dualistic relationship with our body, something up here looking down at our body. but We drop the attention into the body, and so, the mind is low. Our, our field is low. It's not up here. It's low. And we drop in. We drop the breath down into the hara. We put this mudra here because it concentrates that energy and reminds us where our mind drops to. And our eyes are still and downcast bringing us into a base. And this is how we cultivate the discipline of Sila. So we cultivate the attitude of Sila with each other, we cultivate the discipline of Sila. Of our own sense of being moral beings in the world. I'll talk a little bit about good-bad, but we don't focus on good-bad as the ground for what it is to be moral. So then, another thing is we have this wonderful schedule that we get to bounce up against. And we have precepts, and we have lots of other things. And in the schedule, for example, we just assume we're going to do the schedule. That's just an assumption. And if we can't, it's not the end of the world, but we just let somebody know we can't. We're not going to make it for this period of zazen because something is happening. I'm sick, or I'm... Um, at the monastery, there's a, a person called a tankin who you're supposed to check in with or write on the tanken pad to say, I'm sick and I'm not going to be at Zazen. We take the precepts and we wear a very public um, expression of having taken the precepts so that people know that that's our commitment and if we don't seem to be holding up to those, maybe somebody will give us feedback. And um, all of this is to cultivate the accountability of Sila. Without proper attitude, without a sense of discipline and accountability, it's very hard to train the heart and mind to be moral in the world. We can have ideas of what we think are good, but they're very, very shallow they get washed away by any amount of distress. And then suddenly, we're able to call out other people, but maybe not this one so much. So this, you know, and with these things, one thing I want to say about the posture, you know, we may have an idea, one aspect of discipline, we may have an idea that we and if we need to do it, because it's truly a, um, a physical thing, then go for it. But we may have an idea that we like other postures better, or this and that, but if we consider ourselves, I'll be strict here for a minute, if we consider ourselves Zen students, right, and that's what we do, then maybe it would be interesting to practice the posture we've been given until we penetrate the marrow of all the teachings that that posture has to offer. And then we choose to do something else. Because we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we haven't learned. So... um, That's an aspect of the discipline. We come in and we accept some things about this way of being together that are uncomfortable, but we let them work on us until we (coughs) penetrate understanding to the marrow. And when that happens, then there's like, okay, maybe we make some adjustments. I get what I was supposed to learn here. (coughs) And now it's time to adjust. So... Body and speech. When the, when the Buddha talked about um, action, he talked about that there are basically two categories. There's wholesome action and there's unwholesome action. Now this gets translated into the West, right into our notion of good and bad. Right? but There's a problem with it because it's the view that's underneath it is slightly different. Good and bad in the West is a transcendent set of notions that are coming forward from something beyond that we're living up to. They're fixed in the world. Now most moralists don't think this way, but certainly our tradition comes from this. That there is a good and there is a bad and we should know what those are and we should align ourselves with them in every situation. If we understand wholesome and unwholesome actions in that same way, it's very confusing. For the original sangha, and it's very confusing to our practice, it's not confusing, I wouldn't care that much if it was confusing intellectually. It's confusing in terms of how we understand transformation and practice. So, the original sangha, the Buddha was con- and the monks were actually concerned more about harmony than being right. And this would make sense, because the Buddha's realization wasn't um, a transcendent, permanent good. That wasn't the realization. The realization was the dependently co-arisen nature of all life, of everything that we experience. And so, there's this phrase, this um, word, iripachayata, okay? So that's the Sanskrit phrase, and this is basically what it means, and I'm going to read it, because if I paraphrase it, I'll get it wrong. When this is, that is, from the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes from the cessation of that. So for the Buddha, one of his realizations was the importance and the intimacy of causality under everything. Now what our job was was actually to look very closely to understand how if one thing arises, another thing arises. And if a particular view arises, and harm arises because of that view, then we have to know something about the view. If there's a view, and there's an intention, and there's an action, they follow. So if there's an action that causes harm, then that tells me to look at the intention. And if the intention is not exactly what we would like it to be, you know, if it was... um, full of ill will, then we have to look at the view. We have to step back from the action that we perceive in Sila to the intention to the view. Everything eventually leads to view. All of our behaviors eventually come back to a view. Somewhere in the body, there are all kinds of views that we believe are the absolute nature of our reality, and we act from them. And so, this basic realization of the causal nature of everything, you can see where the whole, if you take this, you can kind of see where the whole Buddhist worldview comes from, right? Because, Four Noble Truths, when this arises, that arises. There's suffering, there's a cause of suffering. There's an end of suffering, there's a cause of the end of suffering. Kay. You can see where the dependent co- what's called, the for those who have studied the 12-fold cha- chain and Pratichya Samatpada, the arising of the karmic self, you can see where that comes from. This arises, there's ignorance, and with the ignorance there's, a certain, there's karmic formations, and with karmic formations then arises a divided mind that's obsessed with discerning the world, and so on and so on and so on, until there's thirst and grasping and Rebirth. Karma itself, which is understanding our conditioned minds and how it leaves seeds for fruition later. So if we can have someone, and and this was very important in terms of um, behavioral discipline for the Buddha, which was, it wasn't the action that left the karma for future It was the intention. So you can do something that looks really nice on the surface, and if your intention is manipulative, then that's what leaves unwholesome karmic seeds. So we're always looking at our intention behind the action, not the action. The action may be completely socially acceptable. There are many socially acceptable actions in this day and age that are throwing unwholesome karmic seeds around the world at levels that, that are heart-breaking and full of despair when we take them in. But they're acceptable. They're even some considered morally good. But um, But are they aligning our human action with the recognition of the interdependence of everything, or are they cultivating further separation and harm? We're certainly, as a species, not walking gently through a moss garden. So for us, the. um, For Zen, we have our um, Sila is organized around the um, Bodhisattva vows. We often say 16 Bodhisattva vows, but really there are three refuges and 13 vows. But we just kind of say 16 vows. the way we understand these vows is that we commit ourselves wholeheartedly to them, but we can't ever fully uphold them. So, there and, and we'll, say, we'll say it at the end, there are the four bodhisattva vows that are um, that are impossible to keep. Things are numberless, I vow to free them, and so on. And this creates a really dynamic field for uh, morality because you don't get to be right. You don't get to be finished. We don't get to be the one who knows every aspect of what good behavior is, and everybody else has got it wrong. We don't have that possibility. Because whatever we commit to, and this is very frustrating for the ego, this is very frustrating, because um, ego wants to stand on firm ground. Wants to have a very clear idea about how it's going to be able to have a set plan of behavior that results in being correct and without pain forever. Some form of that different for every person but some form and um, because not being correct is scary right not having from ground is terrifying at first so um, and we do this in Zazen you know we're looking desperately to find some fixed point that we can just rest on and all this settles down and there's there's for a very long time There's a delusion that what will result in the settling will be finding something fixed. Like awakening or enlightenment. Some fixed thing. But exactly the opposite. You will never find a fixed thing. It will not happen. It's never going to happen. And so um, that's the good and bad news all at once. and so, the giving up of the desire for the fixed thing is the only way. And so, there's no way we're, we would, especially in Zen, there's no way we're going to lay out a morality that think, makes you think you have some fixed point you're going to stand on. You don't, you're not going to get that. And not only that, in a, very, um, in a very real way, a kind of fixed code that we get right um, Zen would probably consider, you know, Zen regards that, or in my understanding of Zen, we would regard that as not being moral, but being amoral. You know, just saying, here's a set of codes, and I'm just gonna follow them to the letter and never question them. That's not a dynamic moral field. That's giving up our moral responsibility to a set of codes. And it's interesting when you see the way morality works in that kind of um, way of treating it because it's, uh, we spend all this mental energy. So let's say if we took um, not killing as an absolute, don't kill ever. So how would you possibly fulfill that? There's really only one way and that is to spend all of this energy negotiating what constitutes killing, what doesn't, is, is a lettuce killing, you know, is an animal killing, you know, what's killing, and then you spend all this energy trying to, so that you can find your safe ground where you're not killing, because you're taking this as an absolute. But somebody else has a different idea of the ground, what the appropriate ground is. We have a major debate in this country rooted in this problem. Where is life, and where is death, and when are we killing, and when are we not? You know? But it's rooted in this way of treating morality. It's not rooted in actually a part of being um, life. is killing. And so, if I look at my intentions... This is a much more difficult path. If I'm always looking at my intentions, when and am, am I supporting separation? When, when am I meeting that action from a sense of I'm separate and I'm doing what I need to do to that out there? Or when am I meeting it with a full embodied recognition that that out there is me? And now how am I going to act? that space. Now, that may not be a realization yet, so that may be kind of intellectually difficult to figure out. But, this is what's good about what Zen puts in place, which is a kind of act-as-if terrain. We act as if that's our realization, whether it is yet or not. We sit together as a sangha, we move together as a sangha, we sit zazen and look at the mind. We have a particular way of understanding uh, morality that leaves this very dynamic field open where we have to actually engage each other. We can't condemn, we can't say, oh, you're not doing, you're not keeping the precept right. That doesn't work here. So that means we have to stay this deeply interconnected community that is always in dialogue and connection around what it is to be moral beings in the world. And the minute we're not doing that, the precepts die. They're done. They're just a piece of paper. What does your clock say? 11.38? 1138 my <laughs> clock has moved two minutes in the last 30 minutes okay <laughs> it's a, I, I, clearly I'm being t- taught something about time <laughs> yeah so I so I have 12 minutes right so I'm gonna wrap up um, it's like, wow, that's very little time for so many words. <laughs> yeah. I was going to start talking about two things. One is, look at the way we do this to ourselves. It's very simple, just turn it the other way and say, how do we um, how do we erect the good person we're supposed to be? You know, that we're supposed to fix ourselves toward. Or erect the bad person we shouldn't be that we hate ourselves any time we see this whatever bad person. How we organize that thinking for ourselves and split ourselves into some war between these two fantasies of the good person and the bad person, rather than opening up a dynamic field of questioning that allows us to look at our actions and really ask, what's going on here? And instead of having a commitment to becoming some perfected transcendent thing, moral thing to have a commitment to a deep acceptance of what this one is because if we don't do that we actually cannot study ourselves in a way that we can mature into being a more wholesome person who doesn't cause harm and by wholesome it literally just means whole not good to actually become a whole person because as a whole person then I feel you completely. You're a part of what I am. And so, and I feel me completely. And so I'm not just chopping away at my mind. And so to actually look at that, and then here's another aspect that I think is really wonderful about the way Zen frames this, which is, um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure this is all, I'm not gonna go as far to say this is all Buddhism because I don't necessarily think that's true. But it's certainly in the Zen school, which is part of our morality comes up from the fact that we don't know. That We actually don't know the limit, what we are. So this causal world where everything's causally rela- related, we're not going to see all those conditions ever. They're always, most of them are going to be completely outside of our capacity to ever see. At this moment, the ego goes, <coughs> you know, it's, that's completely terrifying it points to our powerlessness to really understand. And, um, and this is what Dogen meant. There's a quote. There's, uh, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite quotes of, of Dogen's is um, in the Genjo Koan. And he's talking about exactly this point. When Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. When the Dharma isn't completely filling us, we think we know everything know the limits of ourselves, we have very complete knowledge. Okay? When the Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. Now what's the thing that's missing? And he gives a big, he gives a description of this. For example, when you sail out in a boat to the midst of an ocean where no land is in sight and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. So this is what we can see. But the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. Though there are many features in the dusty world and the world beyond conditions, you see and understand only what your eye of practice can reach. This is always true of us. And this is true of who we are as a person. We think we know who we are. But we don't. The causes and conditions that brought about this one, most of them will be outside of as far as my eye practice can reach. I won't know them. And so, and I certainly won't know them of another person. So any little idea I'm putting on somebody, this is laughable. It's just laughable. It's like this time, ty- it doesn't have anything to do with them. And even if you have one or two things right about them, it's one or two things. And so, um, our very morality comes out of the realization that we cannot know. Because at that point, I meet a person And I stay open to what arises at that moment. And I'm certainly not always good at this. But um, arising at that moment, because at that moment, that person is not the person that I thought they were three days ago. There's somebody else at that point. Now this is not to, and this is true of us. Now this is not to say there are not patterns in the world that we need to pay attention to. This can go too far. We would start going, oh, I have to stay. Everybody's new, and I don't want to hold anybody accountable to anything. No. There is karma, and there are patterns that renew, and there are some patterns that are incredibly destructive. And um, we are obliged to, or I would say, bodhisattvas are obliged to deliver to the world and to ourselves, a deep understanding of interconnection. But we are also obliged to call out anything that is causing separation and harm. And there are a whole lot of patterns. There are a whole lot of shared karma in the world causing separation and harm. And we call that out, but these two things live together. Are we calling out the separation and harm from a place of, if not realization, at least faith in, our deep interconnectedness. Faith in that we cannot know the whole of another human being or what's resulting in their actions. Holding both of those together, if I am going to be completely intimate with this person or this government or whatever it is, I'm going to be intimate with it, I'm going to recognize how I am interconnected with it, and I'm going to call it out. But if we drop one, and this is true of us, right? So if I'm sitting zazen, and I'm seeing a pattern that's arising, and I don't like it very much, you know, one side, we say this a lot, on one side, in the interconnected world, we're totally forgiven, because we can't know. We didn't choose our conditioning. So we're watching that conditioning arise. And if we're being mindful with it, we're not taking it personally. It's just conditioning of our mind, okay? So we're being with that intimately. And in that sense, we're totally forgiven. And that conditioning is laying seeds that results in further actions that may cause harm. And for that, we are totally responsible. There is a moment when the karmic conditioning lays new seeds. We're not responsible for what happened before that moment because it's gone. But we are responsible for that moment. And if we don't bring our minds to see really, really clearly that moment, then it will just go forward without us seeing. And so, yesterday we talked about and, and and this these cultivating these different ways of paying attention. And now we're starting to talk about what we're paying attention to. And what the Buddha asked us to pay attention to was the way these regenerate. And the first thing they harm is us. You know, We get very focused on the outside, and that's true, and that's important. But really, the first being harmed by our internalized harmful conditioning is the one experiencing it the one that's being cut up into pieces because like we talked about yesterday, you know, we are already awake mind. We're just only loyal to little parts of it. We stay loyal to that. If we just stop being loyal to only that, then the whole thing rushes in. So underneath, when we're, when we're sitting zazen, and we're looking at um, all of this arising, we are walking through a moss garden, gently. And we are sitting upright and still with it in a disciplined way, where we're not moving all over the place to the best of our ability. And we are holding ourselves accountable to our own desire to not cause harm in the world. We're doing those three things. But, um, but we're trying our best to do it in a way that doesn't create further separation. And ripping ourselves apart is certainly further separation. Insulting ourselves, certainly further separation. Being impatient with ourselves, certainly further separation. Because, in all of those situations, what we have turned ourselves into an object to be ridiculed or overly praised or whatever. So, if we can let that go, that would be wonderful. Really good for you and me and everybody. So it all comes down, and I'll close with it all comes down to being skillful in the moment. We won't have a plan. There's no plan. We won't have a plan for every single arising. We just won't. There isn't one because all the conditions that come together at every given moment, it's going to be slightly different. And if we're really intimate, we can have plans for the big, gross things in the world that. Um, that we need plans for, but in this kind of deep engagement with ourselves, there are no plans there, it's about just being completely present with that moment of replication, ah, there it is, there's the thought, there's the view, I believed it, and I acted on it. take responsibility, love yourself, move on. There is nothing not deserving of love. Mainly because that's how we experience interconnection in our body when it's clear. That's our visceral experience of it. What we call love, not the, you know, the capitalist romantic version of it that's shoved down our throat all the time, but the, um, but the, the deep, true garden of our existence. That's just simply how we experience viscerally. What we call love is is the visceral experience of interconnectedness in our bodies and and in our feeling of each other's bodies and minds and lives. And if we can just let the other stuff go, boom, we fall onto that. And we live from that.